Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we are going to meet the new president of the University of Michigan, Santa Ono, and hear about his plans for one of the state's largest and most renowned research universities. Talk about governance and money, tuition costs, and diversity. And Detroit Free Press political reporter Dave Boucher will join the show to talk about all of the new state laws that took effect on January 1st. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've decided to join us today. New year, new schemes. That's the way it works in democracies where elections and their consequences frequently have their first real impact once the calendar turns. This week in Lansing, Democrats are taking control of the state House and Senate for the first time in nearly 40 years. But even before they get to work with Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer on their agenda, we're going to start to see the fruits of the efforts that Whitmer was able to accomplish with Republicans in charge of the legislature during her last two years in office. Later in the hour, we are going to talk with University of Michigan President Santa Ono about his plans for the university and how he considers the university's connections to the state more broadly. But before we get there, we want to spend a little time unpacking the new laws that take effect here in Michigan this month and how they will affect our state. To do it, we're joined by Dave Boucher, who is a political reporter at the Detroit Free Press. He recently wrote an article that details 11 of the new laws going into effect this year. Dave, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start with the things that you think will have the biggest impact on Michiganders and why. I, I think uh, the, the, the popular narrative in Lansing uh, was frequently that Governor Whitmer was unable to get lots of things done because the legislature was controlled by the opposite party. But the truth is that there were a number of things that uh, she and the legislature were successful in uh, in bargaining to get done. So, so give me your list of the things that we should all have our attention turned to. Sure, that's exactly right. I think it's worth you know noting that the legislature and the governor couldn't, for example, get a tax cut done, a sweeping tax cut, or, or maybe some systemic changes. But, you know, many of the new laws that are taking effect this year were sponsored by Republicans. And so it indicates that Republicans and Democrats were able to work across the aisle to get something done. Uh, some of the issues that I think might affect most Michiganders, one of them is Michigan students have to take a new personal finance class in order to graduate high school in the future. So the curriculum for this class is still being uh, created, and it's going to only apply to students who are in eighth grade starting in 2023 or later, but it's a new half credit class that students have to take. There's a little bit of flexibility involved, but this is a new class that all students are supposed to take. The idea being that kids won't be caught off guard by the financial decisions that await them in the future. So this is going to affect many Michiganders moving forward. Um, uh, other bills that that you know will affect uh, students and 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 people in general. Uh, right now in Michigan law, anybody uh, who has a service animal and legitimately needs that service animal can't be denied services or discriminated against by a, a local business or a restaurant. But people who train these animals can be. They can be turned away or otherwise not able to, you know, bring in these these dogs or or other animals for training before they become service animals. So under a new law that goes into effect in March. These same legal protections must also apply to the people who are training service animals. So that's going to have a big impact, again, on, on people who need these animals in order to function in society. Uh, one last bill that I'll highlight uh, is Republicans and Democrats fought for years over election-related issues. We've all seen <laughs> the, the fight that's that's kind of happened in Lansing and also in, in Washington over anything related to voting. But in the fall, 
Republicans and Democrats came together and made a few agreements ahead of the midterm election. One of those agreements that actually takes effect this year, took effect on New Year's Day, is expanding where communities can have polling places. I think we're all familiar with polling places at schools or at public libraries, but now the local communities can have polling places at banquet halls or community centers or clubhouses or other places that are privately owned. As long as the people who own these sites are not political candidates themselves, or as long as they don't run a political action committee, which is one of those things that, you know, funds campaigns and other political issues. Yeah. So I, I want to talk just a little about that particular change, expanding the possibilities for places that people can vote, that, that may be a little surprising, I guess, that we have a new agreement among Democrats and Republicans to do that. I mean, given the concerns with things like election denial in past elections and even in uh, last November's elections, are there concerns about how that may affect processing elections and whether it plays into this doubt that some people seem to have about the integrity of our elections process and, and in particular counting of votes? So this is one of those those bills that Republicans in the state house had actually already presented to the governor in the past and she vetoed. And so this is part the concerns with the bill were that, as I outlined earlier, that there might be un, undue influence based on who owns this particular polling place. Obviously, you know, there are there are laws already in place that prevent sort of electioneering or other similar activities at these libraries or schools. But there was a fear that if this was held at a, a, a local banquet hall that you know, if that person who owned it happened to be a Republican or Democrat running for the legislature, that that, that might actually influence voters in an inappropriate way. But there was that specific language that I mentioned was added to the bill, and this was part of a broader legislative package. So there was a little bit of a give and take involved. For example, that there were other measures that were involved uh, that included uh, the ability for clerks to pre-process absentee ballots. So that's the idea of opening up envelopes, starting to get the process of counting ready without actually counting. So this was approved as part of that package and after, again, years of, of debating and compromise. Hmm. So I want to talk a little about some consumer protections that uh, that we're going to have more of here in 2023 because of what the legislature did. This is an area of the law that for a really long time in Michigan was very active. When Frank Kelly was attorney general, this was a central part of, uh, of, of his work. Uh, it still is uh, in the attorney general's office, but, but we have some new things, I guess, that uh, – that people uh, who are buying things here in Michigan uh, can count on. Yeah, that's right. This is a bipartisan bill package that is aimed at combating scammers who are pretending to sell things on places like Facebook Marketplace or Amazon. I'm sure we've all seen deals on uh, an online site that just feel fantastic or almost feel too good to be true. But in, in many cases, there are scammers who are pretending to sell something, then somebody provides their personal financial information or some other personal information. Then those scammers either take the money involved in the purchase or, or otherwise use that personal information to steal an identity or do something untoward. So this law requires third-party sites need to collect specific information about sellers, and sellers are, are mandated to provide that information to sites. And so this is information isn't going to be publicly available. Like, you're not going to be have to provide like a, a, a bank account number to the buyer, but you do have to provide some basic uh, banking and tax information to the actual platforms themselves. So again, you, if you want to sell something on Facebook Marketplace, there needs to be a system in place where you're providing this information to Facebook Marketplace to indicate that you are legitimate. In turn, those platforms need to make sure that there is a some sort of security mechanism in place to ensure that that personal information isn't disclosed or otherwise you know, uh, taken advantage of. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, Dave Boucher. He is a government and politics reporter with the Detroit Free Press. Uh, he recently wrote an article uh, about uh, 11 new laws going into effect this new year. We are on the fourth day of 2023. Some of these laws took effect January 1st. Some of the others take effect as the year uh, unfolds. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Let us know what you think of new laws that affect us here in Michigan in 2023. Also, do you have any questions about things that were passed last year that uh, take effect this year, how they work, how they might affect you? 
Also, what kind of things do you think the new legislature should be prioritizing in the newest session? We're about to have a discussion about the Democrats uh, in Lansing who are taking full control of government in the in the governor's office and in the legislature for the first time in about 40 years. What is on their agenda? What will they be able uh, to do? And what would you think they should start with? What are the things that you think are most important? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in our discussion that way. Dave, as I said in the open, this is the first time in a really long time that Democrats uh, technically do not have to worry about Republican votes to get things done. They have majorities in both chambers of the legislature. And of course, uh, Governor Whitmer was elected to another four-year term. There are a lot of expectations, I think, among uh, Democratic voters and uh, liberal and progressive advocacy groups about what should should happen. Uh, some of those expectations, I think, probably uh, reach beyond what uh, may be possible. Some of them may absolutely be within within the realm of possibility. But but I want to have you talk just a little about what we're likely to see in the first few months uh, of this, which I think is really critical. Uh, the last time this happened, uh, this all came apart really quickly. Uh, th there was a debate about revenue and, and a tax hike that led to recall elections that, that ended the Democratic majority for, for almost four decades. So th this idea of getting off to the right start, not angering voters, but also getting some things done that the voters who put them in charge uh, expect. I think it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a tricky path. So so give me your sense of what they may start with and how you hold the majority together, but also how you make sure that you don't threaten that majority either through recalls, which are a little more difficult now than they were uh, back in the 1980s, uh, but also holding that majority into uh, the, the the 2024 elections. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of discussion in Lansing and in political circles about what issue is going to be House Bill 1 or Senate Bill 1. Mm -hmm. So the first uh, legislative issue that is introduced because that has historically had symbolic significance about what priorities are for the new session. While I think that is obviously important, I think it's not – it would be uh, an issue to forget that there are some substantial logistical hurdles that need to be addressed before anybody can start actually addressing some of these policy issues that Democrats were elected to, to tackle. You know, as you noted, Democrats haven't held power in years, which means that none of the sitting lawmakers in the House or the Senate have ever led a committee meeting before. And so there's, there needs to be some log just logistical training mm -hmm. and practice, frankly, that's involved so that the people who are in these committees are familiar with how the process works. Obviously, many of these Democrats have been in the in committees before, but they've been in the, mini the minority. And in the past, that has meant that there has been, depending on the committee, the, the committee little to no actual involvement in deciding which bills come up on an agenda, how those bills are discussed, discussed in committee, who gets to testify about those bills, which bills are assigned to which committees. These, this all sounds like it might be logistical bureaucratic issues, but it's actually really important to figuring out how Democrats can legislate. I talked to a, a source yesterday who doesn't anticipate any quote unquote big ticket issues actually coming up until March, just because that process takes time. The governor isn't going to give her state of the state address until the end of this month. We aren't going to get her budget presentation until February. And again, lawmakers are still just kind of learning the ropes and potentially coming together to talk about how they can stay unified. You mentioned Democrats have the House and the Senate. They have a very narrow margin in the House. And so on any particular issue, be it gun reform, uh, repealing abortion laws, repealing right to work, they need every single member of their caucus probably in order to get any of those issues addressed. So once Democrats come together and once they figure out the process, again, I think some of the biggest issues that we're going to see are changes in gun laws, the, the governor kind of uh, flagged she talked that about that her, in her speech. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I anticipate some of these, and, and these won't be um, strange ideas to people who've been following legislative process. Uh, there, there's probably going to be some updates to storage, uh, gun safety and, and storage laws. There's been a lot of discussion about that after the, the massacre at, at Oxford High School. So there's going to be some discussions about that. Uh, I think that we're going to see Democrats repeal the 1931 abortion law. Uh, that's a law that is, is largely um, – 
unenforceable now that there was the Proposition 3, the, the Constitutional Amendment passed in the midterm. But it's something that was obviously a big ticket issue for Democrats up and down the ballot. And so it would serve a purpose to for Democrats to repeal that. Uh, and I think that there's some other what people could consider easy wins that aren't as um, aren't issues that might necessarily fire up Republicans on the other side. So, again, for example, uh, there are currently protections in place for uh, Michigan individuals um, who are members of the LGBTQ community uh, to prevent them from being fired or evicted due to their sexual orientation or gender identity. But those protections are only afforded by case law, not by an actual statute. And that's been legislation that's been introduced in the past. I've been told by lawmakers in the past that they actually had the votes to approve it, but it was never actually brought up for a full vote. So those are issues that could come up and that people could, in theory, immediately approve, as opposed to, a, say, a, a right to work, which we've already heard a lot of discussions about. And there's you know, this idea among conservatives and among the business community that that would be something that would be a step too far right out of the gate and might imperil a Democratic majority. So those are some of the issues that we that we think that they'll address. But again, don't expect this to come out in early January or even early February. It's going to take some time for lawmakers to kind of get their bearings. Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. So let's start with John in Detroit. John, what's on your mind? Well, I uh, I have to give you credit for sitting at the table with uh, <clears throat> your your good friend from the uh, Detroit News. I noticed he put you on other sides of the uh, the table on uh, <laughs> Flashpoint. Uh, That's I, for I safety, John. <laughs> I, I give you a lot of credit. I really do, because you know I read him for for many many years, and I I just don't. See see the intelligence i don't see the reasoning but that's that's a that's a, another story so um I, I, right to work has got to be uh, you know top of the the agenda it, we might not want to do it right away to not ruffle feathers but it, it's got to be up there but there's a lot of other things and repealing the uh the uh the gay marriage ban that our lovely Republicans did, what, 15 years ago here. Mm-hmm. That's got to go out the door with the abortion ban. Just got to get it off the books. And so. so... So, John, it sounds like, to me, uh, you know, you, you've got a list of things that, that I think are probably best described as sort of core ideological, liberal or progressive issues. Things that, that send a, a message about what liberal politics and liberal government ought to be like, which I think is really, really interesting. And I think that there are a lot of Democratic voters who have those same expectations. At the same time, of course, uh, you know, I think the, the, the question is whether you can hold the caucus together to get those things done, A, and B, whether there would be this kind of ideological backlash against those things. All three of those things, I think, are are, are, are sensible ideas from my point of view, but I think there are a lot of uh, voters who, who might think differently. I, I really appreciate you bringing those up, though. Dave Boucher, talk about the likelihood, for instance, of something like right to work rising to the top, even if it's among other issues, as a way of signaling that, hey, look, it's a new day. There's a new ideological paradigm along with uh, the idea of the kind of practical governance things they might want to do. Yeah. So the day that the new House Democratic majority uh, leaders were chosen, we, the, the media got the chance to, to interview the new Speaker of the House and other Democratic leaders. And the new Speaker, Joe Tate, and the, the new floor leader were asked if right to work would be repealed or if that would be something that would be taken up immediately. And the floor leader said, yes, absolutely. And the speaker said, that's something that we're going to consider. And so I think that that is indicative of this push and back and forth and this idea that that Democrats still need to get all on the same page about the strategy that's involved. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's highly likely that right to work is something that is on the agenda. And it's something that Democrats want to repeal. I don't know if that's going to be the first thing out of the gates that they do, but I do think it's something that they will address. I I also think it's important to note that Detroit News pointed this out and others have pointed this out, that after right to work was passed in Michigan, there was a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that essentially said, uh, essentially implements a right to work law for public sector unions. So it says that even if right to work is repealed in Michigan, there would still be the the essence of right to work would still be in effect for public sector unions. So it wouldn't apply to, to private sector unions, but it would apply to public sector unions. So I think that that's also something that is at least worth considering when looking at that specific policy. The, the other the policies that, that the caller mentioned are absolutely things that Democrats will, will take a look at and could address 
sooner in the legislative session, I would think. Yeah. John, Happy New Year. And again, thanks for calling and participating in the show today. Let's go next to Pat in Birmingham. Pat, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, good morning. Happy New Year, Stephen. Happy New Year to you, too. If the, uh, if the guest could is, is, have some any, any insights on how the changes in term limits may affect the legislature even this year, uh, you may remember that there were some pretty strict limits on how long someone could serve in the House or in the Senate, and, and uh, yep. a, a proposition actually changed those things. So I'm just kind of curious if, uh, if there's any predictions about how that may shape this legislature or sure. legislatures. Pat, it's a great, it's a great question. Uh, Dave Boucher, I've only got a couple minutes left before I've got a break, but th- I think this is an important question and a very critical issue, how legislators will behave now that they are not subject to the same very strict uh, term limits that we've had for, for about 30, 35 years or so here in, in Michigan. Yeah, I think the biggest practical change is the idea that lawmakers can continue to serve in the chamber where they're already serving a little bit longer. Uh, That could mean that if Democrats hold control of the chamber for another two years, that Joe Tate, a Detroit Democrat, could be the speaker for more than one term. And I think we've seen for a long time now that Michigan has had speakers for one two-year term, and then they're transitioning to another two-year term. So the concept that that supporters of this amendment, constitutional amendment that changed term limits, pushed is the idea that it could include more experienced leadership leading committees and leading the the legislature. So if Democrats were able to achieve what they want to achieve and voters like that, that could mean that Democrats, that Joe Tate could remain as the the Speaker of the House and that Democratic committee leaders could remain in in charge of these committees. That's supposed to help ease sort of that bureaucratic transition that I mentioned that happens at the start of every legislative session. So that is a huge practical uh, practical impact that we could see play out Uh, again, less so this session, but more so in the following session if Democrats keep control of the legislative chambers. Okay. Dave Boucher, uh, government and politics reporter with the Detroit Free Press. Really great to have you with us uh, to talk about the new year and the legislature and the new laws. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to stay here in the state of Michigan, but turn to the University of Michigan and talk with the university's new president, Santa Ono. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Did you know it costs $650 per hour to operate WDET? That's a few dollars more per hour this year than last year. One big reason is that WDET now pays our interns. We're leveling the playing field for underrepresented and low-income applicants to learn journalism, podcasting, audio engineering, and more. I'm Diane Sanders, and I coordinate the WDET Internship Program. We're training the next generation of young people for the future news and information workforce. Financial help from General Motors, Verizon, the Polk Foundation, and the Clarence and Jack Himmel Foundation helped us jumpstart our internship program. You can help with a tax-deductible gift to WDET. Learn more at WDET.org slash interns. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. The University of Michigan is one of the largest and most renowned public research universities in the world, and people from all across the globe travel to its Ann Arbor, Flint, and Dearborn campuses to attend school. It has a range of colleges that teach undergraduate and graduate students to become doctors and scholars and teachers, lawyers, community advocates, and much more. It is also where I happened to attend for undergraduate education. The university also plays a significant role, of course, in our region, conducting research in our state, educating and employing a large number of people, and maintaining a really prestigious hospital network. With an endowment of $17 billion, Michigan has a lot of room to spread its influence. And now the university has a new president, Santa Ono. 
before coming to U of M. Ono was the president and vice chancellor of the University of British Columbia. And before that, he was the president at the University of Cincinnati. He's also interacted with governments a lot, having served on a state biomedical task force and having advised national and regional governments on higher ed and mental health. In addition to his work with pharmaceutical companies, we are really pleased to have Santa Ono here with us on the program to understand why he wanted to be U of M's president, how he conceives of the university's role, and how he thinks the university should most effectively interact with the state and the southeast Michigan region. President Santa Ono, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen, and it's really wonderful to speak with you. We're very proud of you as a graduate of this institution and uh, your 2014 Commentary Prize. Um, I know you're a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and we're very proud of you. Uh, I'm always very proud of my association with the university as well. Uh, First, I want to personally welcome you to uh, the University of Michigan and the state of Michigan. It's really been uh, impressive to see the way that you have uh, introduced yourself, I guess, to the university community and the state. I think you might be the fourth or fifth president that I will have interacted with at the university. And I have to say that uh, the way that you are reaching out to different communities there in Ann Arbor and around the state, both uh, in person and on social media, it's really different than than what we're used to. Uh, give me a sense of why that's so important to you, and and what you've learned, I guess, uh, in the in the months that you've been here, interacting with uh, as many people as you have. Well, thanks for that question. You know, I think the root of the answer is that this is a public university, and it was founded to serve the citizens of Michigan, and that includes Detroit um, as the subject today. And uh, it's really important for the president of the university to connect with all stakeholders, and uh, a primary set of stakeholders are government officials, but also the citizens of Michigan. And so I've really made it a priority uh, during the first uh, two and a half months of my presidency to interact with uh, the governor, uh, with uh, with the mayors of, of Detroit and Ann Arbor, and to travel around the state and to meet uh, uh, graduates, but also prospective students and teachers, and to hear from them what they'd like to see the University of Michigan be in in the next five to ten years. So let's talk about why you wanted to be a university president, and particularly the president at the University of Michigan. A lot of college administrators I've talked to in the last few years, especially, have talked about how difficult that role has been Uh, because of the pandemic, uh, leading these institutions, making sure uh, that they're able to serve students and and faculty and and alums and all the other interested parties. It's a different job than it was in 2019. Uh, Talk about how that has changed for you and what attracted you to this job here in Ann Arbor. Well, um, first of all, you might be amused to know that I didn't set out wanting to be a university president. Um, like many university presidents, uh, I was a faculty member at a number of institutions. I'm a biomedical researcher. I've studied the genetic basis of diabetes. And most recently, I've, my laboratory is focused on uh, the biology of macular degeneration, the leading cause of blindness. And so I did not set out to, to be a university president. I didn't want to be a university president. What happened uh, was that Along the way, I was, as I was promoted to different levels of, uh, of uh, as a faculty member, and then I was called upon to to serve the university, different institutions, first as a department head, and then a dean, and then a provost, uh, and then ultimately as president. So I never set out to to do this. It just sort of happened. People just continued to tap on my shoulder, asking me to assume greater levels of responsibility. But to answer your question about the University of Michigan, and as you, as you pointed out, I've already been president of two other very large public universities, mm-hmm. the University of Cincinnati not too far away, and an even larger university than Michigan, University of British Columbia, with about 71,000 students. Um, and, and so I, I've already been president, and um, the reason why I was interested in the University of Michigan is that I've always felt it was unique. Uh, it is uh, from the very inception a research university, um, and it is one of the great public universities of the world, as you've pointed out. And uh, 
I was very happy at UBC, uh, but there they have t- a two-term limit, just like the U.S. presidency. So the longest you can really stay there is between eight and ten years, and I was in my seventh year as president there. And uh, as you know, Michigan, uh, about a year ago, uh, began a search for their next president, and they called me up. And, uh, um, you know, I would, be, would have been perfectly happy staying another couple of years at UBC, but when uh, what I consider to be the premier public university in the world uh, called me and said, we're interested in you, it was, it was impossible to refuse and, and, and to have that kind of a conversation. I was delighted that the search committee in the regents actually selected me. So let's talk about uh, what's on your mind as you are getting started in in the role uh, in Ann Arbor, uh, in in charge, of course, of that campus, as well as campuses uh, in Flint and Dearborn, um, which which have their own leaders, but of course fall under the University of Michigan uh, auspice. But uh, what are the, 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 give me like uh, the top three or five things that you think need to be addressed uh, from the president's office uh, at the university uh, as you take over? Well, um, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, the two other campuses have chancellors, and we have very good chancellors leading University of Michigan Flint and University of Michigan Dearborn. I interact with them on a regular basis, and we want to support all three campuses. Uh, In addition to those two campuses, I have primary responsibility over the Ann Arbor campus, which, as you know, is the oldest and largest of the three uh, campuses. Uh, what I'd say are my top priorities, um, sort of not in any, any order, are first to build upon this extraordinary uh, depth and breadth of uh, expertise that exists at the University of Michigan. And just to give sort of context to this, um, there is a, a research organization that, that looks at the number of highly cited scientists around the world. And I don't think a lot of people realize how formidable um, and how impressive um, the leadership and expertise is at this institution. Uh, If you look at the number of highly cited scientists, uh, the University of Michigan uh, ranks in the top six universities in the world and in the top five in the United States. So there are very, very few universities that have um, sort of the array of expertise that Michigan does across you know, over 110 disciplines. If you look at the most recent U.S. News ranking, 110 of the graduate programs are ranked in the top 10 in the United States. So with that comes a a real responsibility, not only to Michiganders, but to the whole country and and to the world, really, um, because it's it's almost unmatched, um, the resources, the facilities, the expertise that exists here. And we have outstanding uh, students and staff that support all of that scholarship and research as well. So to answer your question first, um, I think the opportunity that um, is before us as a university is to leverage that expertise to address some of the most vexing and challenging problems that civilization faces. And you know, if you ask me to point to a couple, certainly climate change and, uh, and, and actually addressing that, mitigating that, Uh, so that our children and our children's children will be able to live comfortably in a sustainable way has to be one of the top priorities. And I've been very clear that that's a priority for me. And uh, I'm very happy that there are about 750 uh, professors at this institution that consider that to be a top priority. And it's really clear from communications from students and staff that it's also a passion and priority for them. So um, to answer your question, really bringing together that um, expertise that exists within our three campuses and 19 schools on the Ann, Ar- Ann Arbor campus in a different way uh, so that we incentivize and encourage collaboration within the university and between the university and the municipalities in which uh, the campuses actually reside and with other institutions uh, locally, nationally, and globally, and with governments in terms of cr- key decisions that have to be made with respect to um, processes and policies that we're really going to have to come together uh, to solve that issue is, is one example. Um, and so, you know, that's something that is, is a big opportunity for the University of Michigan. The second thing I'd say real quick is that 
The University of Michigan was founded in Detroit, and it moved to Ann Arbor, and we already have considerable a considerable presence in Detroit. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the, the Cradle to Career Preschool to 20 collaboration mm-hmm. with the Detroit Public Schools and Margrove College. Uh, and we have nearby Detroit in the Dearborn campus a lot of, uh, of programs and research uh, and interactions with different parts of the city through education, research, and service. Um, and we've really stepped up a community engagement um, in terms of the city of Detroit, and uh, we have a partnership on economic mobility um, and a poverty solutions initiative. But there's so much more that we can do. And, and so uh, one of the uh, first priorities or, or commitments that I made was uh, to move forward with uh, what was called the Detroit Center for Innovation. Um, as you know, Stephen Ross uh, made a major gift uh, to the university, uh, to make that possible, and the state of Michigan has uh, made a matching gift, and the university will also cons- uh, dedicate considerable resources for, for standing up this, uh, what we're going to call the University of Michigan Center for Innovation in Detroit. And I couldn't be more excited uh, to build upon that work uh, to make sure that uh, that building goes up. It'll be a state-of-the-art of, of innovation center. Uh, we're searching for a new director right now. Um, that will be a critical voice within the community, but also interact with different stakeholders in Detroit. Um, and it's going to be a world-class research, education, and entrepreneurship center uh, designed to advance innovation and ta- a talent-focused community development uh, effort by the university. So those are two uh, priorities that I wanted to highlight uh, in response to your question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking with uh, Santa Ono, the new president of the University of Michigan, about his plans for uh, the university and uh, the future there. We want to get you going as well, listeners, on the phones and on social. Give us a call and let us know if you have questions about the role of the University of Michigan here in the state of Michigan. Uh, do you have questions about the governance of the University of Michigan, how it uh, serves undergraduate and graduate students and faculty members and staff. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest right now is Santa Ono. He is the new president of the University of Michigan. We're talking about uh, his plans for the university, uh, how he plans to lead the university into the future. We want to hear from you as well. Do you have questions for President Ono about uh, his new leadership in Ann Arbor or about the university, how the university relates to the rest of the state and particularly to us here in Southeast Michigan. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Before we get to our listeners, uh, President Ono, I'd I'd love to talk to you about an issue that has bothered me for some time uh, at the university. And and to to, to get to that, I kind of have to go back to my freshman year uh, at the university in 1988, um, which w- I think marked the the apex uh, of um, of student diversity on campus. Uh, the black percentage of students in Ann Arbor uh, that year, I believe, was around eight percent, and the total uh, non-white percentage on campus was uh, nearly double that. And it seems that almost uh, every year since then, um, we've gone the opposite direction. Uh, of course, uh, the, the the passage of Proposal Two here in Michigan, which which bans consideration of race in admissions, complicates that. But even before that happened, the university was having an, a more and more difficult time maintaining what it had achieved in 1988 and, and expanding on it. So I, I would really love 
uh, to hear you talk about the things you'd like to do uh, to move the numbers back up uh, to, to a, a, a more representative uh, level and, and how important you think that issue is uh, at the University of Michigan. Well, thank you very much. And what you've said is absolutely accurate, and it's something that I'm very aware of. And you probably know, because you've looked into me, that uh, for my entire career, uh, focusing on diversity and, and really the opportunity of education has been a passion of mine that I've worked on intensively for decades. Um, I'm proud of the fact that the University of Michigan is known worldwide for, for uh, being a place that has for some time uh, believed in uh, diversity in the broadest sense, uh, being critical for our excellence. And, uh, you know, it's been two decades now, as you've said, since uh, UM defended its race-conscious admissions policies in the Supreme Court. Uh, and last year, uh, you probably noted that we filed an amicus brief in, in support of Harvard and UNC and mm -hmm. their race-conscious uh, policies for their Supreme Court cases. So University of Michigan continues to advocate for that, and you're absolutely right that in 20, 2006, uh, due to Prop 2, we were rest restricted from considering race in admissions. Um, and so that, that's certainly, as you point out, um, if, you, if you actually look at the data, it, it had a negative impact on what the university was trying to do. But we, we, we're still going to continue to focus on, on, on addressing uh, what you point out, and it bothers us as well. Um, some of the things that the university has done recently that you're aware of is uh, the Glo Go Blue Guarantee and a Wolverine's Pathway program, and, and these are within the restrictions of, of the law in terms of recruiting underrepresented, uh, under-enrolled students. And uh, we're going to continue to invest in that and increase that. I think the Detroit-based admissions office is something we're going to take a look at uh, because it's, a, it's an, uh, a mechanism for us to support uh, students uh, in those communities in Detroit with respect to applications and financial aid. And uh, we're going to take a look at uh, the Go Blue Guarantee as well as, as key pillars on how we're going to address uh, the diversity of our student body. We're working directly with the Black Student Union. Um, as you know, a new Trotter Multicultural Center uh, was built in 2019 mm -hmm. uh, in support of multicultural students. And just this year, we've launched an inclusive history project uh, which will take several years to study, document, and better understand our history with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we're doing a number of things. Um, we're working with the, with black, the black Student Union, um, and we're very grateful for their support. Um, I think that they can play an important role in our recruitment of underrepresented and, and black students to the University of Michigan. Uh, and so it's going to be a period of a couple of months, I think, uh, working with those students before we come forward with a set of new um, uh, plans uh, and priorities to to try to move the needle, I think um, you know as of late uh, we've we've had some wins with those initiatives, but we're going to really double down and make sure that uh, we implement them in a good way. Mm. Uh, so, and, I, and we of course look forward to seeing what those plans will look like. I, I, I want to push a little further though, and and talk about the. Something that I think has has gone on for a long time in Ann Arbor, and that is that the the priorities that uh, the administration and admissions office set for admission to the university, the things that they uh, that they value the most, often are things that lean into uh, the societal inequality. Sure. That that um, that keeps you know uh, students of color out of elite institutions, and sure. so things like test scores and grades and and things like that. I mean, we can talk, of course, about lots of those things. And that if there were a shift toward uh, you know, to, to weighting some other things uh, more highly, you could produce a more diverse student body that way without even considering race. So, for instance, if geography were more of a of a of a of a factor, and and Detroit and and uh, you know big cities in the in the state had some advantage because of their population. That what I mean that's just an example. But 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 talk about whether those kinds of things might be on the table. 
Well, that's kind of the basis of the Detroit Base of Missions office mm-hmm. that, that I mentioned. Um, and we're also going to look at, at where we go in terms of ge- geography, and so you're absolutely right with that. I'll tell you, in terms of, of what we focus on in assessing potential, um, I led an effort nationally. Um, I was the chair of something called Urban Serving Universities, which are part of APLU, the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities. And we took a a look at what we could do in terms of holistic admissions to move the needle in terms of diversity of of the entering classes in the health science schools. And so medicine, you know, pharmacy, nursing, um, you know, and, and we were able to, to your point, shift what the admissions offices looked at in a more holistic way and we're able to relatively quickly move, move the needle and, and increase the diversity of those entering classes. So, uh, you know, it's something that I've done uh, nationally, and, and uh, that's part of the, That's the kind of conversation we're having right now at the University of Michigan in our conversations with the Black Student Union. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on Twitter, Maureen asks whether uh, the university should be more focused on educating students from this state as a public institution as opposed to the numbers of kids who come from out of state. Uh, right now, I believe the out-of-state percentage is above 48% in, in Ann Arbor. It was not that quite that high when I was a student there. That's That's grown over time. A lot of people really concerned that it's the, the university's primary mission is not to educate students from the state of Michigan. How do you answer that? Well, you know, as you pointed out, I've just arrived (laughs) at the University of Michigan, (laughs) and and as you you pointed out, that that's something that has changed over the the past couple of decades. We are going to talk about that. Um, We're having a retreat uh, with the Board of Regents uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, Actually, one of the speakers is going to be Jeffrey Salingo, who I'm sure you know uh, has written a number of New York Times bestselling um, books Mm -hmm. about college admissions. Uh, and so we're going to ha- have those sorts of questions uh, and conversations at the university. Um, we're, we're undertaking a strategic visioning process that will invite uh, commentary from uh, all, part, all stakeholders of the University of Michigan. And so that's how we're going to think through what we want to be moving forward, and uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure that's going to be one of the questions. And so I'm not going to make the decision on my own. Uh, that's not the kind of leader I am. But um, questions like the one uh, from your listener uh, are very important in our process of thinking through how we, how we want to move the university forward. Mm, yeah. uh, let's go to Dave in Farmington. Dave, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey. Uh, as a public university, as, as you might not quite know, the state level of uh, finances dropped. When my mom went there, they covered almost three quarters. <laughs> when Stephen and I went there, they covered about half. And when my kid goes there right now, they put in about 15% if mm-hmm. you count the med school. Mm-hmm. So should the universe, should the state have governance when it's essentially become a private university at this point? Yeah, great question, Dave. Of course, that tension between public and private and, and investment, public investment at the university is a longstanding issue as well. President Ono, what, what do you make of the state's disinvestment uh, in, in higher ed, which of course makes it more expensive for families that uh, that are that are trying to send their kids, their students to uh, University of Michigan and other places, uh, that that's a that's something you must have seen already. Well, I can tell you, it's it's a global trend, um, and uh, it, it, if you look at Ohio or Illinois, or or New York or California, it's exactly the same story. Uh, and uh, I do think that uh, despite that, um, as I said at, in my very first remarks on this show. I, I'm personally very, very committed to the University of Michigan serving Michiganders, uh, being an economic engine uh, to create jobs uh, for Michiganders. And so uh, to, to me, the fact that the, the proportion of the annual budget has decreased um, is, is not an excuse not to serve Michiganders. Uh, and so um, he's absolutely right. Um, and uh, certainly we, 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 we welcome the investments that have been made by the state of Michigan in the past year and months. Um, I'm very, very um, um, glad that uh, I have a, a line of communication with the governor and uh, with many other members of state government. Um, they really have been collaborative. They've sought me out, um, and, and we're going to work together. 
to for the betterment of the state. And so, you know, what 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 he's pointing out has happened across the country and around the globe. Uh, and uh, I hope that uh, the investments continue to be made. Uh, but uh, we have been able to, as an institute institution, uh, diversify the revenue streams coming into the university better than most. Uh, and I'm going to do my my level best to make sure that this remains a, a first-class institution. I've only got about a minute left, but I do want to ask you about the rumors surrounding the football coach at the University of Michigan, uh, the NFL teams kind of sniffing around him. What uh, What's your take on, on, on that and whether we might uh, have to hire a new coach? Well, you know, I think it's premature uh, to talk about that. You know, those are our rumors. Uh, you know, I have not been contacted by anyone uh, in a formal way. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's, he's certainly an outstanding coach. Uh, I like him as a person. Um, these uh, uh, negotiations regarding his contract and the terms of it are things that our athletic director, Ward Manuel, mm-hmm. uh, is responsible for. And I know that uh, they are talking. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they will keep me apprised of how those conversations are going, and they will, I in turn will uh, make sure that I keep the Board of Regents apprised of that. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something that we just have to wait and see and let them have their conversation. Yeah. I know you've dealt with this issue at the University of Cincinnati with a coach by the name of Brian Kelly as well. I remember that from your background. That didn't turn out maybe the way that that, that, that you wanted, but uh, but at least you're familiar with the situation. Okay, Santa Ono, president of the University of Michigan. Uh, great to have you here in the state and at our university, and great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. We hope you'll come back and uh, talk with us again. Thank you very much. Go Blue. Yes. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk with a journalist about the injuries sustained to Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin. We're going to talk about changes happening to the NFL and reflect on the role that football plays in our everyday lives, something we have talked about an awful lot here on Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.